Good to be back here again. Uh, those of you who were not here last week, we talked about Jesus being the son of David. This week we're going to talk about Jesus being the son of Joseph. And so we're just going to get right into it. I've tried to cut out as much of this as I could. I put it together and I kept cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting and I still need to cut. So let's just get into it and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, your word and thank you for this time again that we've had to praise you. You alone indeed are worthy to receive our praise, our worship, and our all. Um, I just ask now that you would speak to us through this word that we would leave glorifying you, that we would leave knowing that you are in control and that no trial, no tribulation, no hurt, no pain, no struggle that we have would be greater than the joy we have because of your salvation that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, to begin with, uh, last week, as I said, we had talked a little bit uh, about... Uh, the Jewish Talmud and how the Talmud is simply the scriptures with a commentary on the scriptures and then a commentary on the commentary of the scriptures. And it can get very confusing and uh, a lot of it has it came about after the Babylonian captivity and so there's a lot of things in there that just frankly aren't true. But at the same time we see that God was still speaking to them. That the rabbis that were studying the word of God were seeing things that we often miss, but for whatever reason that we talked about last week, some spiritual reasons and whatnot, God had covered them from being able to see it completely because of pride, because of envy, because of a number of things, and as a result, they missed the Messiah. That they have an idea that there are two Messiahs rather than one Messiah who comes twice. They see that there are two messiahs, and by the way, Jesus was not one of them in their eyes. Well, we have here, first of all, on a commentary in the Talmud on the book of Zechariah, it says this in regards to these four craftsmen, these four horsemen, you might say. The Lord then showed me four craftsmen. Who are these four craftsmen? Well, these two rabbis are talking to each other, and they are they say, Messiah ben David, Messiah ben Yosef, and the righteous high priest and Elijah, who will serve in the Messianic era. Both Messiahs are called craftsmen because they will rebuild the temple. So they see these four craftsmen of, Ze of Zechariah, one being what we talked about last week, the Messiah, son of David. The one that's supposed to come and be exalted, this great king, which they say Jesus didn't, wasn't that. So he couldn't be that Messiah. But then they see another Messiah, the son of Joseph, and that's the one we're going to talk about today. He was the suffering servant, you see. It goes on here in this uh, Talmud in Sukkah 52. It says, one said in this eulogy is for Messiah ben Yosef, who was killed. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing. But it goes on and it says that it is on account of the Messiah, the son of Joseph, who was killed, we can make sense of the following verse of Scripture. And here he quotes the Bible, Zechariah 12. They shall look on me because they have thrust him through. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. Now the interesting thing about this is the rabbis are picking and choosing these verses and then they're putting a lot of their own understanding of other scriptures into it, but they're missing a huge part. And I think it's deliberate. I think that it's a part of Satan blinding them. If you look very carefully and if you look at Zechariah 12, it says more than that, but they only quote the part that they want. It says here, this is quoting Zechariah. Before that, it says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and of supplication. Then they will look on me, the one they have pierced. They completely skip this part about pouring out a spirit of grace and supplication. You see, that's what Jesus, the son of Joseph, did. He poured out himself. He poured out his spirit of grace and supplication on Jerusalem. But you see, they don't talk about that. And notice that the son of Joseph has to die before the then. 
the son of Joseph, in his death will pour out a spirit of grace and supplication. Then you're going to get the Mashiach ben David, the son of David, the Messiah coming in that attribute. You see, that's why Jesus came, to pour out a spirit of grace and supplication. Grace. And you see, as we talked last week, the rabbis feel, well, if we're good enough, if we merit his coming, he's going to come as the son of David. If we're not good enough, then he comes as this suffering servant. Well, we've never been good enough. You see, going to church, guys, because you are sitting here this morning doesn't make you a Christian. Any more than, as Brett says, going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger or sitting in your car or in your garage makes you a car. Following the Judaic ways doesn't make you any more of a Christian either. Many of us know people who have followed the Judaic ways because they think that if they become Jewish enough, then they'll be a better Christian. No, that doesn't make you a better Christian. It doesn't even make you a Christian. The Jews are doing that. Many of them do it too, you know, much better than the people I know that try to do it. And they're not Christians. Because it is by grace that you have been saved, not by works, lest any man should boast. That is what Mashiach ben Yosef has come to do. And we are going to talk about him today in much greater detail. There's a saying here in Hebrew, Ma'aseh avot simon levina, which means basically uh, the actions of the father are a sign for the children. The life of Joseph is going to be a sign for the children. Just as David was a sign for us, for the children, that Jesus was the Messiah, the life of Joseph is also a sign saying, yes, you can trust that Jesus is the Messiah. No doubt about it. We're going to start here in Genesis 37. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them up to Genesis 37 because we are going to go through verses. I'm going to have to skip some, but we're going to follow all the way through Genesis 42 here today. And so if you have them, open them up to Genesis 37. If you don't have them, I'll be having some of these things here up on the uh, screen so you'll be able to see them. And I'm going to kind of highlight some things, and maybe these are the things that I have highlighted would be good things to underline in your scriptures to kind of just remember, oh yeah, this, this reminds me of the Messiah. This reminds me of Jesus. All in all, guys, there are over 100 connections between Jesus and Joseph. I don't have time to go through them today. But over a hundred different things that you can say, just as Joseph did, the Messiah did. That's a lot. More than we even see with David. And I think the reason being is because Jesus was coming as the son of Joseph first, in a sense. Yes, he is the son of David still, because it's the same Messiah. But his role was as the son of Joseph in his first coming. And because of that, I think the scriptures just are loaded with it so that the Jew couldn't miss him. And yet they did. Somehow. We read here in Genesis 37, 1 through 2, when Jacob is in the land of his father sojourning in the land of Canaan. And it goes on and it talks about that Jacob has Joseph. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brother. And his brothers aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. So it says that Joseph brought a bad report to them to his father or to their father. Didn't make him a popular guy. Just as when Jesus gave a bad report to his father about his children, it didn't make him a popular guy. Jesus, time and time again, gave a bad report to the father by saying, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethesda! You brood of vipers! You whitewashed walls! Over and over, Jesus gave a bad report to the father about his children. We see that many times in the New Testament. Going on to verse 3, it says, Now Israel, who is Jacob? Now, by the way, Jacob is called Jacob when he's not living by faith. We have many times in our lives that we aren't living to the, the, the faith that God has given us. We're not living up to that potential, are we? We're not trusting him. And in those times, you'll see in Scripture, he's going to be called Jacob. 
even after he's been given this new name. But when he surrenders and he offers his life to God fully and he says, hey, I'm not in charge, you are, then he's called Israel. So this is one of the times that he's operating in faith. It says, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. And he even gave him a tunic of many colors. Now we've heard that many times, Joseph a coat of many colors. And what do we think of that? Oh, well, maybe it made him a leader, all of this kind. We don't really make any connections to that. But let me tell you, there is a reason that this is recorded in Scripture. He gave his son a coat of many colors. The word tunic here that is used in the Hebrew is only used one other time prior to this event. And it is in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 where we see that God took the animal skins to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness as that tunic. There's a reason that word is used here. It is to show us that this covering, this coat is special. It it, it defines a special relationship between the father and the son. It defines an aspect of, of a covering of sin as well. Well, If you look here in the temple, the temple also had kind of a coat of many colors as well. This veil that was separating the holy place from the most holy place was a very colorful tunic. It it defined a special relationship to go past that covering. It, It talked about an atonement aspect as well for sin. The priests were given coats of many colors in what they were to wear. Very specific instructions given for their clothing because it was for the holy people. I believe that this is a picture. Joseph's coat is a picture of the holiness and of God's garment. We'll talk about that as we go a little bit more. But in Genesis chapter 9, we see that God makes a covenant with Noah. And he puts this rainbow in the sky saying, I'll never do such a thing again. I'll never flood the earth like this again. There's only been one flood, guys. And this rainbow is a sign of God's covenant to us and to the earth. But in Revelation 4, as well as in many other places in Scripture, in Ezekiel and in others, we see that when the throne of God is seen, what is always around God's throne? coat of many colors, a rainbow that covers the throne, encircles the throne, literally. You know, our rainbows are like this. There's only one place that you can see a a, a rainbow that's a circle. You know where it is? If you're up in the air. If you've ever been in an airplane, you can see a complete circle of a rainbow. And this is what the Bible describes when we see the throne of God. It is a rainbow encircling the throne. He has a coat of many colors as well in some ways there. Well, let's move on to verse 5. It says, Joseph had a dream. And now when he told this dream to his brothers, they hated him even more. Even more because he, you know, he tattled on him. Now he's got this dream, a prophetic dream. You know, Jesus heard from God too through You might say dreams or parables. Jesus spoke to the people in parables. Things that, you know, were kind of symbolic. You know what the people thought of his dreams or his parables? They hated him for them, didn't they? Just as they hated Joseph. In verses 7 and 8, you see, behold, we are binding sheaves. He describes this, this dream, and these sheaves are bowing down before Joseph's sheaf. And Here at the end of verse 7, it says, It bowed down to my sheaf. In verse 8, his brother said to him, Are you indeed going to reign over us? You're going to reign over us? Who are you? Where did you get this kind of authority? Ring a bell? You see, Jesus, as he taught in parables, as he explained his dreams, you might say, they said, Is this not the carpenter's son? And it goes on here, In Matthew chapter 13, they took offense at him because Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Joseph was without honor in his home home by his own brothers. He goes to Egypt and he's going to be held in high honor 
but in his hometown, he was with not honor because of his words. Because of the words. Let me ask you something. Are you willing to bow down and accept the authority of Jesus Christ? Are you willing to let him be an authority? You know, I think most of us, oh, absolutely, until the rubber meets the road. Until he says something you don't like. Then, well, I don't know. We might actually hate him because of it. You see, he has authority. I have a t-shirt here. Intolerant. Jesus said, I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto me or unto the Father but by me. John 14, 6. Would you wear that shirt? That you're intolerant today? You see, this is pretty offensive. Okay? That's as I'm walking towards you. But as I walk away, boy, now I'm really going to make you mad. Homosexuality is sin. Islam is a lie. Abortion is murder. Some issues are just black and white. Hmm. (laughs) You see, guys, this is offensive. By the way, these are just Jesus' words. Homosexuality is a sin. I can show you verses in the New and Old that will tell you that. Islam is a lie. It doesn't say Islam, but it does talk about false religions, pagan gods, and all of these things that are Islam, and how it is a lie and an abomination to follow them. Jesus' word says, it doesn't say the word abortion, but it does say murder. It's in the Ten Commandments. This is offensive. These are Jesus' words, and yet, are we willing to bow to the authority of God and His word? Now, don't get me wrong. I love the homosexual. I love the Islamic person. I love those who have had and even perform abortions. We just saw in New York that they just passed that it's okay to murder your child after it's born. At birth, we can now have abortions. Do you think that this is pleasing to God? Are we... Saying, we're not going to let you be an authority, God. We're not going to stand against that. People are going to hate me if I wear this shirt. It's kind of funny. I've got three of these. (laughs) My wife found one of them in my drawer, and she says, do you really? I'm just going to get rid of this one. Throwing her under the bus here. You see, we are to be intolerant. I'll tell you what, I am intolerant of a lot of things my kids do. A lot of things. If I tolerated it, I wouldn't be loving. I wouldn't be a loving father if I tolerated them. If I tolerated them to do drugs, would that be loving? No. If I tolerated them to to beat up their sister, would that be loving? No, that wouldn't be loving. There's a lot of things that I don't tolerate. Still love them. I'd love to go on and on about this one. But we have to move on. My question to you is simply this. Are you willing to bow to the authority? Because that's what they took offense at. Are you really going to reign over us? You're going to tell us what to do? Is that what we say to God? Because it goes far beyond these issues. Of what the word says. Well, in Luke chapter 19, verses 12 and 14, we see that um, Jesus is talking again in a parable, and, and it says that they engaged in business until I come, but his citizens hated him, and he sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. That's where we are in a society today, guys. We don't want Jesus to be an authority. We don't want him to be. We want him to be Lord. We want him to be a loving God. We want him to be this nice guy that loves everybody. But we don't want him to be the one who tells us what we can't do. We love him to tell him what we can do. We don't like it 
when he tells us what we can't do. John 6.41, the Jews then complained about him because he said. His words are offensive to so many today. You know, that's one of the hardest things I think about being a Christian is to stand on the truth of God's word of what he says when it's not socially acceptable, when it's not politically correct, even in the churches today. But moving on to verse 9, we see, I'm going to actually probably jump to verse 11 to highlight, his brothers were jealous of him. One of the reasons that they didn't like his authority is because they were jealous. They wanted the authority just like us today. We want the authority. We want to be able to say what's okay for my life. Well, it's the same thing with Jesus. In Matthew 27, we see that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. The Pharisees were jealous of Jesus, just as his brothers were jealous of Joseph. In verse 12 and following here, we see highlighted in verse 13, Israel said to Joseph, The story here is this, the brothers are out watching the sheep down in Shechem, at least they're supposed to be in Shechem, and his father Israel says to Joseph, I need somebody to go check on the kids, and Joseph says, here I am, right there in verse 13. Well, so Joseph goes down to Hebron, and he comes to Shechem where his brothers are supposed to be. I think the reason his father was concerned because Shechem is the place where, where uh, two of the boys, I think it was Simeon and Levi, had, had killed all the people of Shechem because of their daughter Dinah being raped or their sister Dinah being raped. And so they became a stench in the nostrils of the people at Shechem. And here they are tending sheep there. And his father may have been saying, uh, you might want to go check on your brothers. Joseph is the first one not worried about it. I'll go check. Here am I. I'll go. And he goes down there, finds his brothers aren't there. Where they're supposed to be, they're not. Likewise, when God comes, when Jesus comes, do you know what? His brothers, his own people, aren't where they're supposed to be. Now, Shechem means shoulder. It's this higher, elevated place. But where they are is in this low valley of Dothan. And so he sees this man who tells him that, hey, I saw him go to Dothan. He goes to Dothan to see And it says in verse 18, they saw him from afar. They saw him coming. And before he came to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They saw him coming and say, hey, we're going to kill him. Likewise, in Matthew 27, verse 1, we see here that when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. You see, they were watching for Jesus. They were watching his every move. They were watching for him to come into town. They were watching for him, just like, you know, Samson. They were watching for him to leave the city. They were watching for Jesus because they wanted to kill him. They wanted to trap him. And that's what they do. In verse Genesis 37, again, here in verses 19 and 20, they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Let us throw him into one of the pits. That's what they did to Jesus. They thought he was some dreamer. You think you're really the son of God? If you are the son of God, come down from here. You dreamer. Okay, if you really are, then do this. Prove it, you dreamer. Well, we end up seeing here in Matthew 27 that where I was just talking about here, if you are the son of God, Come down from there. Now, I can't show you in Scripture for sure that Jesus was thrown into a cistern of any sorts, but I think there's a high probability because if you go to Israel with us, one of the places we go is the house of Caiaphas. And in the house of Caiaphas, which is where Jesus went, and he was there for a while, there is a lower dungeon. And it even has the, you know, the, the iron circles that you would chain people to down in the house of Caiaphas. Jesus very well may have been thrown into this pit for a while while he waited. Moving on. In Genesis 37, verse 21 and 25, it says here, Reuben, the oldest brother, 
of Joseph, rescued him out of their hands. He said, don't, let, let's not kill him. Let's just, you know, throw him in the pit. We'll figure it out. Don't shed his blood. Throw him into this pit here, it says. And then when you get down to verse 25, it says they sat down to eat. Reuben thought it was all taken care of. So they sit down to eat. Jesus, after he is thrown into this pit, after he is going to be crucified, left for dead, what do they do? His brothers sit down to eat the Passover meal. You see, in Scripture, there are two Passovers at the time of Christ. One, he is the Passover. Then there's another Passover the next day. Why? Well, because there were the northern and the southern Jews. The northern Jews and the southern Jews disagreed on the day of Passover. So there are two Passovers. And that's why we see both of them in Scripture. But nonetheless, we see that the brothers sit down to eat after they betray Jesus. We're in verses 27 through 28 there of Genesis 37. Again, just kind of looking at that, it says, Sell him to the Ishmaelites, let not our hand be upon him. The Midianites, the Ishmaelite traders, that's where Joseph was taken. We're not going to do it. We won't kill him. Let's let them do whatever they want with him. What did they do to Jesus? They handed him over to the Romans, to Pilate, and tried to get Pilate to make the order to kill him, right? We often say it was the Jews that killed Jesus. Well, it was both of them. Just as Joseph's brothers were just as guilty as the Ishmaelite traitors, the Jews were just as guilty as the Romans. Or you might say the Gentiles. Both are handed over to the Gentiles. But here's what I find interesting. How much did they sell Joseph for? 20 shekels of silver. Why? Well, if you look here in Leviticus, it tells us that the price of a slave that is up to 20 years old, the Bible tells us Joseph is 17. If you are under 20 years old, the price of a slave for a male is 20 shekels of silver. They were selling their brother as a price of a slave. But yet we see Jesus is sold for 30 pieces of silver. Why the difference? Well, that's very interesting because a dead slave, the price is 30 pieces of silver. If you had hurt somebody's slave to pay for that, to pay for a dead slave, 30 pieces of silver. The very price that Jesus is betrayed for. You see, this is prophetic as well. Joseph wasn't going to die. You're just going to be a slave. But Jesus, you are going to die. You are the one that's going to pay the price. He just didn't stay dead. Okay? But he did die. He was resurrected. Back to Genesis 37 in verses 29 and following. We see here in verse 31, they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. Then it jumps down and it says, they go and they take this to their father and give it to him to like, let him make his own conclusions. And he says, yes, this is my son's tunic. He says, a fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. A couple of things here. Number one, the blood, dipped in blood. We'll show you some verses here because that's exactly what Revelation describes our Lamb of God as one who was slain and his robe dipped in blood. Not only that, but the, the word that is used here is very unique. And the, the, the Jews kind of make a connection with this, that he's to be torn to pieces. Well, that's interesting because that word torn to pieces is also used in Psalm 22. If we look on this next slide, we see Psalm 22, which is a, a very messianic psalm. Everybody agrees with it. Even the Jews say this is a messianic psalm. It talks about many bulls have surrounded me. Bulls are the leaders of the people. They gape at me with their mouth like raging and roaring lions. That word raging is the same word used there for Joseph being torn to pieces. Now they see, well, if Joseph is torn to pieces, yet here in a messianic, that same word is being used to be torn to pieces. And Jesus was torn to pieces by the leaders of the people. I mean, in, in many ways, literally. Flogging, when they flogged you, 
Those things would wrap around you and then they'd pull and it would literally pull out chunks of flesh. Jesus was torn to pieces by them. Dogs have surrounded him. And so it's Revelation 19.13 that said, He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. See, there's a, a picture that with Joseph's robe being dipped in blood, it's saying this is what's going to happen to the Messiah, Mashiach ben Yosef. We go on to Genesis 37, verse 34. When Jacob hears about this, what does he do? He tears his garments. He tears his robe, doesn't he? What happens when Jesus dies? God, you might say, tears his garment. As that veil in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Not not only does that show access now into the most holy place, but it's a symbol of Joseph. The Father tears the garment of the living God. Moving on to verse 35 in Genesis, we see that, what does Jacob say? He says, I will go down to Sheol to my son. When Jesus died, where did he go? He descended into hell so that on the third day he would rise again. But when he descended into hell, what was he doing? Peter says he's proclaiming victory in the depths of Sheol. And who brought him up out of Sheol? His father. His father went down to Sheol to his son and raised him to life. You see, the Bible even tells us in Romans that we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. You see, when God the Father went down to get His Son, I believe, by the way, He also took all the people who had died in the good parts of Sheol and brought them up for the resurrection, which is why people come out of their tombs at the, at the resurrection. The Father raised them up. You see, God the Father, through Jesus Christ, has raised us up out of the dip, depths and the pits of Sheol. You know, we do have problems today good friend of mine said, you know, if all Jesus does for me, if all God ever did for me was send his son to die on the cross so that I might live with him forever, let that be enough. We might go through hell on earth. I'll tell you what, I know some people who have suffered greatly. I can't even imagine the suffering that they go through on this earth. But you know, I'm just amazed to see them go through that suffering with joy. Why? Because they know their Father. They know the outcome. They know that we are here but for a moment. We have an eternity. And what we go through here on earth, it's worth it. It's worth it for what we are going to see. Because our Father has gone down to Sheol and He has freed us. He has proclaimed victory. Going on to verse 36 and 38. It says, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is often a picture of the Antichrist as well. But um, then we also see that Joseph is later going to become a daughter of the priest of On here. Uh, Just note um, kind of a priestly aspect. It connects him to a priestly area. We're going to just jump then all the way because the story is really going to pick up in, in chapter 39. And so in 39... Verse 3, we see his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. See, Joseph, when he is sold, he goes to this guy's household and everything he does is blessed. Everything he touches, it succeeds. And so he puts him in charge of everything. Isaiah 53, another clear messianic passage, even the Jews and all pastors today would tell you it's a messianic passage, says of Jesus, he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Whatever God did, whatever Jesus did, it prospered, it was successful. And you say, but he died. He was beaten. Yeah, that was the plan. 
Everything he did was a success. Guys, we might go through some things in life that seem like, God, where are you? He's working. He's working. He's prospering. It's for your own good. Do you know how many things have gone on in my life? And at the time, I was thinking, God, what are you doing? And later, I look back and I thought, oh, thank you, God, that you did that. Because you were doing it for my own good. Well, as we go on here in verses 4 through 6 of Genesis 39, we see in verse 6 that he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. He put him over everything. Look what we see in John 5.30. It says, Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus had in mind the things of the Father and only did what his master, you might say, did. Because God put everything under his charge. And that's what Jesus does. In verses 7 through 10, we see after that, his master's wife cast her eyes on him and says, man, he is a handsome guy. I like him. So she would come to him and say, lie with me, this temptuous woman. But he refused. Jumping down here in verse 9 and 10, it says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God, Joseph told her. You see, Joseph knew that if I go and sleep with you, not only am I betraying my master, but what he's really saying is he says, how can I sin against God? It wasn't about, oh, we might get caught. It was about, I know. If I did this, I would know I sinned against my father. I won't do such a thing. And it says in verse 10, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her. You see, Joseph was tempted, and yet he was without sin. He passed, didn't he? He passed the test. And by the way, it was a test. We'll show you that here coming up. But again, his motive was God. His motive wasn't what other people thought of him. His motive wasn't, what do I want? His motive was his father. And that was it. You know, Jesus likewise was tempted and it's very interesting, when Jesus was tempted, he was alone. We'll talk about that in a moment, out in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4. And we see time and time, the devil comes after him. And you know what he always says? It is written. The devil says, you know, Jesus had just got done fasting for 40 days, and he says, you've got to be hungry. Here's some, here, turn these stones into bread, Jesus says. It is written. Every time, how did Jesus overcome the temptations of the world? He didn't go to seek the, the strength within. He went to seek God's strength within. It is written. He went to the Word. Just as Joseph, he didn't go to his own. He says, I'm not going to sin against God. Because God's word says, don't do this. You know, many of you may struggle when tempted. Day after day, just like this temptuous woman that came to Joseph, sleep with me, sleep with me, day after day after day, sleep with me, sleep with me. Maybe many of you, that computer screaming out, the pornography, the pornography, the pornography. But nobody will know, nobody will know. It is written in Psalm 101, verse 3, I will set no vile thing before my eyes. It is written, Psalm 119, verse 37, Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life. I love that. You know, I think it's Proverbs that talks about this temptuous woman that tempts you. And it says that this young boy walking down the street, this guy's watching him, not even realizing that he's going to a snare and will lose his very life. Maybe some of it's drunkenness. Maybe some of you struggle with alcohol. Drunkenness. 
it is written in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, a greedy, an adulterer, a slander, a drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. Maybe it's laziness. Maybe you don't struggle with the drugs and, and the porn, but maybe, maybe you're just lazy. Maybe it's because you just want pleasure. That all I wanted, I don't want to go and do what God told me to do. I'm supposed to be, you know, preaching the word. I'm supposed to be a, a light to the world and sharing the gospel with people. I want to go have fun. I want to retire and have an extra house in Arizona. I want to have a nice motorcycle. I want to have a pool. I want to have everything that I've ever desired and just do nothing. It is written in Proverbs 21, verse 17, whoever loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and oil will never be rich. By the way, I don't think he's just talking about having money either, by the way. I think he's talking about the same kind of thing that Revelation chapter 3 talks about when these people who are rich, but they do not realize that they are, they are poor. Okay? Because he's talking about the spirit in eternity. Maybe some of you are dishonest and you struggle with being honest with people. In your business, in your personal life, whatever it might be, it is written in Luke 16.10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. And I could give you many other it is written verses for every one of these. My point is this, is if you're struggling with something and if you're being tempted, you're not going to be able to solve this problem yourself. Do what Jesus did. Get thee behind me, Satan. It is written. Pull out the word of God. That's what Joseph does. That's what Jesus does. Moving on in chapter 39, verse 11. One day when he went to the house, to none, none of the men were there, it says. None, nobody was in the house. Basically, I'm just going to point out this. He's left alone. Just as Jesus was left alone when Satan comes to tempt him. Just as you. It's oftentimes when you are alone that that temptation of pornography or whatever the case might be. All the more than that you need God's word with you each and every part of the day. Maybe put on the Christian music. Okay, rather than turning on the TV, maybe open up your Bible. But guys, you're never alone. God is always there with you. Joseph realized, yes, nobody's in this house, but I'm not alone. I'm not going to sin against God. He's watching. He sees every move I make. You're never alone. We could talk a lot about that. Moving on, though. In verses 15 through 18, we see that she keeps pressing on him. And, and finally, he grabs, he's like, no, 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 get away. And she grabs his cloak. And he's so scared that he, he just takes his coat off and runs, leaves it behind. And so the woman says, oh, you know, a woman scorned. You don't want, you don't want that. She was scorned. And so she takes this thing. And she waits for her husband to come home and says, look what your servant did. He tried to rape me. He even he fled when I screamed and left his cloak behind. That's what we see going on here. But it says here in verse 18, but as soon as I lifted up my voice, he left his garment beside me and he fled out of the house. Yeah, he ran. He ran all right. Guys, if you're tempted by porn, run. Get out of that office. Get away from that computer. If there's a woman that's smiling at you from across the room and you're a married man, run. Run from sin. Flee from the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Flee. Hebrews 2 says this, he himself suffered being tempted, but it goes on, yet he was without sin. Just as Joseph, Jesus was tempted in every way. He understands your trials. He understands when things aren't going right. He's, he's gone through the same things. But he did it without sin. Psalm 105 says, Joseph then, it says, remember I said he was tested? 
He was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The word of the Lord tested Joseph, and yet he was without sin. Guys, another thing. There's a lot of preachers today who are out there preaching from God's word, not giving you the whole counsel of God, twisting the scriptures, telling you that these things are okay, all is just another name for God, okay? Uh, 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 that child's not life, okay? Homosexuality, you've got to tolerate, keep the communication lines open so that they'll hear the gospel. Run. Run from those preachers. We move on. In verse 21 through 23, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. God was with Joseph. And it goes on at the bottom there in verse 23, because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. It wasn't because Joseph had all this amazing schooling. It wasn't because Joseph was up on the the latest demographics. It's because Joseph was with God. God was with Joseph. That's what made him succeed. The blessing and the hand of the Lord upon him. In Romans 8, it says, No, in all these things, we, that's you, that's me, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And this is also why Jesus, as well, everything he did was what the Father did. He says, I, I came to do his work. Moving on into Genesis chapter 40, verses 1 through 6, we see that Joseph, because of this, is arrested. He's thrown in prison. But two other people are thrown in prison with him. Pharaoh, we don't know all the background, but we know that Pharaoh had his cupbearer and baker. The chief cupbearer and the chief baker are thrown in prison with Joseph. Right? But one night, they both have a dream. There in verse 5. And Joseph came to them one morning and said, Hey, I, I see you're troubled. What's wrong? And they tell him this dream as it goes on here in verses 7 through 12. It, he tells him this dream. And there in verse 12, Joseph says to him, This is the interpretation. He's able to interpret the dream. He's able to tell the future prophetically. But what's significant here is this. How many people are in jail? Two. And as Joseph tells this dream, what happens? He says, this is the meaning of the dream. You, Mr. Baker, are going to die after three days. The birds are going to come and eat your head out of a basket. But you, chief cupbearer, he tells the cupbearer his dream first, but he says, you, cupbearer, are going to be restored. Do you remember when Jesus, when he was thrown into the pit, when he was crucified, when he was put on that cross, there were two. One of them, his doom was sealed. The other one, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. One is restored, the other is lost. And the one that is lost is a picture of those who are saved, those who are not. And those who are not saved, what's going to happen to them? The birds are going to come and eat and gorge their flesh. As we go on, we see here in verse 13, and we'll come back to this other part, but in verse 13 through 18, he tells them the dream and he says, hey, remember me. Remember me when you go and are freed to the cupbearer. Because he says at the end there in verse 15, he says, I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. Just like in Jesus, Luke 23, we see that Jesus was taken before Pilate, before Herod, before Caiaphas. And you know what? They couldn't find fault with him, really, could they? He says, he he has done nothing to deserve death. Just as Joseph did nothing, Jesus did nothing. In verses, uh, really in verse 19 of chapter 40, it says, In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you, hang you on a tree, the birds will eat the flesh from you, as I said. But look what it says in Revelation 19 about the lost. 
It says, he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and captains. I think there's a reason that the word bird is used. Birds throughout scripture are often a a picture of, of, of demonic activity, demons and Satan. Going on to chapter 41, verses 1 through 7, we see after two years goes by, two years, cupbearer never mentioned a word. But Pharaoh, God is with Joseph anyway. God is taking care of this. Two years, Joseph, a man who did nothing, a man who served God, a man who stood up for God, is in prison. And we think we have problems. But we never see Joseph losing faith. He's just waiting waiting to be used by God. After two years, God says, all right, I'm going to give Pharaoh a dream. So Pharaoh has this dream, and you see seven sleek cows and seven fat cows, right? And I'm not going to go over the dream to save some time here um, because i got to wrap up. But we see that Joseph, in chapter 41, verses 8 through 11, the cupbearer comes and says, I'm reminded of my shortcomings. I need to repent. There's one that can tell you this dream. Okay, when I was in prison, this guy, Joseph, he can interpret your dream. So they bring Joseph out of prison. What's interesting is nobody else in the kingdom could tell the dream, only Joseph. Only one was worthy to open up the understanding. What do we read in Revelation chapter 5 of Jesus, the Lamb of God? Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is He because nobody else can open up the scroll but Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. He alone is worthy to open up the scroll. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. We move on here to verses 15 and 17. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream. There's no one who can interpret it. And he says... In verse 16, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph says, this isn't me. It's God. Likewise, God, I don't, or guys, I don't care what gift you have. It isn't you. It's God's gift in you. It isn't you. No one should think too highly of himself. It's God's strength in you that allows you to accomplish whatever it is, whether it be basketball, whether it be... Uh, taxes, whether it be creation speaking, whether it be a pastor of a church or a mechanic, it's God in you and his gifts. You know that Joseph didn't know the answer. Did you know Jesus didn't know all the answers either? Matthew 24. He says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, by the way, this is before he was resurrected and glorified. After he's resurrected and glorified, he doesn't deny knowing the end times. But before that, he doesn't. Okay? So just as Joseph didn't know, Jesus didn't know. In verse 73, or, um, uh, sorry, slide 73, um, we see here in Genesis 41, verse 25, just as Yeshua is resurrected, Joseph was brought out of prison. Just as Joseph is able to interpret the dream, Jesus is able to unroll and open the scroll. And after he does that, what happens? Joseph is glorified and worshipped. They bow down to him, just like in Revelation. After Jesus opens the scroll, he is glorified, he is worshipped, he is exalted. Um, I'm going to kind of skip this next slide here in Revelation 5, but... We're going to go back to Genesis 41, verses 37 through 41. And we see in verse 40, it says, After Joseph interprets this dream, he says, You shall be over my house and all my people. Only in regards to the throne will I be greater. Because of this, as I said, he is exalted. And he says, Only in regard to the throne am I greater. John 5 The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. We also see in Matthew 26, all authority in heaven and earth was given to Jesus. All authority was given to to Joseph. Moving on to verses 42 through 44. 
Pharaoh then gives him a signet ring. This is a ring that kind of identified that this is coming from Pharaoh, just as Jesus was coming from the Father, you might say. He was given a gold chain around his neck, and everybody would bow the knee before him. That's exactly what happens with Jesus. In Hebrews 1, uh, chapter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, it's talking about Jesus. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint. The Hebrew is the same as the Greek here or there. When Joseph got the signet ring, it's the same thing. He is the exact imprint. He is the signet ring of the Father. There's good reasons for that. In Revelation 1.13, it says he stands among the lampstands, and it says he was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a what? A golden sash around his chest. Joseph got a gold chain. Jesus gets a gold sash. A picture there. Moving on to verse 45 in Genesis 41. We're getting close here. Pharaoh called Joseph's name this Zephaneth Paneah. We don't know what that name means. Look it up in commentaries or ideas. We don't really know. And then it says Joseph was 30 years old. Just as David, as we talked about last week, was 30 years old when he began his kingship, Jesus was 30 years old when he began his ministry. And just as nobody really knows what Joseph's new name is, guess what? Philippians 2.9, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, and that at that name every knee will bow, just like with Joseph. Not only that, but on this next slide we see in Revelation 19.12, it's going to tell you that, that Jesus, when he comes back, he had a name written that no one knew except himself. In the exalted state, as Joseph was here, he has a name that no one knows but God himself. There's a name God has that has never been blasphemed, never been, uh, you know, trampled on. I love that. Now, moving on here in Genesis 41, verses 48 through 49, we see then one of the first things Joseph does in this plan to, to save up for this famine. It says he stores up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. I think those words are there for a reason, the way that they are written, because it is the exact same words that we see in Matthew 13 and in Genesis 32. You see, grain is often used in Scripture as people, the elect, the chosen of God, Right? We, the wheat and the tares gather up the tares. They go into the barn to be burned. The wheat gets to go to heaven. The same verbiage is used in Genesis 32 when the promise is given to Jacob. He says, I will, be sure, I will sure you well. Make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered. He's saying, your descendants, my people, are going to be like the, grand of the, the grain of the sea. I'm going to gather you together. And that's what Joseph does. He gathers the grain together. Going on to verses 50 through 53, we see he has two sons. I'm going to make this fast. We see the Gentiles and the Jews. Okay? And Joseph has those two. Um, in Matthew 17, verse 5, it says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Listen to him. When Pharaoh, when the people are coming to Pharaoh and say, what are we going to do? We're going to starve. He says, go to Joseph. He says, he'll tell you what to do. Do what he tells you. We're to go to Jesus. Do what he tells you. Do what he tells you. Not just the things that you want to do, but even the things that you don't want to do. Because he will save you. Run to Jesus. Verse 56, all the world came to Egypt to buy grain. Revelation says, I counsel to you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. You see, we go to Jesus, okay? That's who we go to. Buy from him gold refined in the fire. Now, again, we can't purchase it. Jesus purchased it for us. But the bottom line is, the Jews, or I'm sorry, the Gentiles, are coming to Joseph to be saved. It's a picture of Christ. The Gentiles today have flocked to Jesus to be saved. We know that Jesus even calls himself the bread of life as well. And we are to eat that bread of life, just as Joseph was giving out the sustenance to live. 
in Genesis 42, we see that the brothers came to Egypt because of this famine, and Joseph speaks harshly to them. Okay. Then we see in verse 21, a heart change in Jacob. Uh, they repent, or in his brothers, I should say, they repent. In verse 23, Joseph weeps. In verse 24... He, uh, Simeon is taken. I'm not going to talk about that as much, but then he sends his brothers back. And, but Jesus, or I should say, Joseph has not revealed himself to his brothers here on this first trip. He sends them back with a, some instructions. Okay, uh, just to save some time here as they go on, the silver is returned in their sacks and they think, what is it that God has done to us? Um, but, just like us, guys, there's a lot of things that you go, what is this that God is doing to us? But God meant it for good. Just as that silver couldn't buy the grain, it was returned to them. All the works that you do, guys, do you know that your good works are going to be returned to you? Yeah, you're going to lay your crowns down before the Lord. You see, you are storing up glory, and it's returned to you. The good that you do on this earth is returned to you. Again, I'd love to talk more about this, but uh, like I said, I knew this was going to be a little long. So anyway, Jacob is distraught. He comes back because Simeon is kept back. Joseph is gone. He says, now Simeon, and you want to take Benjamin back because this guy told you to bring Benjamin too? He says, I'm not going to do that. So he's called Jacob here in Genesis 43. He's called Jacob because he's not trusting God. He said, I'm not going to do this. But some time goes by, a couple of years, they have no food. He has no choice. We're going to die. So he says, fine. Take Joseph. Whatever God does, God does. And then he's called Israel again. Here in chapter 43. We're moving on here in Genesis 44, verse 16. The brothers go back. Kind of the same thing happens. They go back. They're all happy, but Joseph had put the silver uh, cup in Benjamin's sack this time. They go. They, they come back to capture these guys after they must have been thrilled. We're going home. Woohoo! That was great. And now we're like, oh no, here they come. He takes out, finds the silver cup in Joseph or in Benjamin's sack. And what do they say? God has uncovered your servant's guilt again. They repent. And now they're changed people. And we see Judah saying, listen, my, my dad's going to die if Benjamin doesn't come home. Take me. Take me instead. And at this, Joseph can't handle it anymore. He breaks down, he weeps, and he reveals himself to his brothers on their second trip. You see, the first trip, Joseph wasn't recognized. But on the second trip, his brothers are, he reveals himself to his brothers. Guys, on Jesus' first trip, Messiah ben Yosef, the Jews, his own brothers, have not recognized him. But I got news for you. When he comes back on the second trip, his brothers are going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They will recognize their Messiah on this second trip, the second coming. I love that, and that would preach a lot here, but I've got two slides left or three to go real fast here. In verse 3, I guess I really too because I just talked about this, but in Joseph, in verse 5, Joseph said, it is, I was sent ahead of you because it was to save lives that God sent me here. Why did God send Jesus the first time? It was to save lives, to prepare a place for you. Just as Joseph went on ahead to prepare a place for his brothers, Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. Then in verse 3 of chapter 45, um, same basic thing. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead. Romans 11 kind of talks about that same thing. I'm not going to talk about that today. And we'll go to the last slide here of Genesis 45. After that, he reveals himself, he says, Now go tell my father of all my glory. Tell my father. And that's what the brothers do. They go back and the father glorifies the son because we see Jacob didn't believe the report at first 
until he sees the gifts, until he sees all of that blessings, just like in Jacob. But in verse 28, Jacob declares, my son is still alive. That's what I want to end on today. There's so many things that we could have talked about, but I want you to understand something. His son is still alive. He's coming back a second time. And the trials that we're going through, guys, they mean nothing. Just hold out. Don't grow weary and lose heart. Run the race. Persevere for that crown of glory because his son is still alive. Don't get caught up on the here and now and what's going on in your life right now because it doesn't matter. What matters is that the son is still alive. We've been apart, but he's going to call us home because he has gone ahead of us to prepare a place where you will also be exalted and glorified because of him. So that is the Mashiach ben Yosef. When he comes back, he'll be the Mashiach ben David. But for now, he's the suffering servant and he can understand and relate to your problems. So if you've got those problems, I'm going to ask you, as we close and, and they come up to just close us out, if you want, we're, we're, we're way late. And I apologize. I knew I was going to do this today, but I'll stay after to, to pray with you. Lay those burdens down here today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time today. Thank you for your word. And thank you for the extra time and the patience of these people. Lord, I pray that this word has filled them more than any food that they're about to eat could ever do. In Jesus' name, amen.